A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Madeline McRae. Madeline was warned away from the sack of Magdeburg when she saw the plumes of smoke stretching high into the sky, and she soon found shelter in Saxony. Good for you, madam. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 54 of The Thirty Years' War. So last time we watched Magdeburg burn to the ground as one of the most infamous scenes of the Thirty Years' War took place. Considering the visceral nature of the sack of Magdeburg, it's easy to forget amidst the propaganda that the event was actually a loss for Gustavus Adolphus, who had been forced to allow one of his major allies, that is the city of Magdeburg, to fall to the imperialists. The reason for this failure, Gustavus insisted, was down to those two darned Protestant electors, John George of Saxony, and George William of Brandenburg. Because those two were so unwilling to support the Swedish king, their lands were blocked off to him, and he couldn't march from his base in Pomerania to help Magdeburg. Yet, while it had been a terrible scene and an unfortunate setback, it was not all rosy for the commander who seized Magdeburg, Count Tilly. While his forces had taken much from Magdeburg, they would not be able to rely on that sacked city for support into the future, as they had hoped. So... Count Tilly would have to find new sources of succour for his large army, lest they desert or engage in any more disastrous attacks on imperial cities. What this meant for both commanders was that Swede and Imperial alike were earnestly searching for some opportunity to force a decisive encounter, and during the summer of 1631, this encounter appeared close at hand. But first, some housekeeping remained in the way. In this episode, then, we examine that summer of 1631 and the background to that famous battle of Breitenfeld, where the greatest and most important victory of Gustavus's career occurred, just a few kilometres away from the trembling city of Leipzig. Without any further ado, then, I will now take you to summer 1631. Ever since the ticking clock had been set, the Swedish king had encountered frustration after frustration in his efforts to move the Germans to support him. He maintained an army of 24,000 men with the support of the French, but actual substantial progress had continued to elude him so long as potential allies remained non-committal. 
The conflict that would become known as the Thirty Years' War was already 12 years old, and the two Protestant electors in Saxony and Brandenburg, whom Gustavus so desperately wished to have on his side, had seen enough of the conflict so far to know how quickly affairs could change. Had not Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, seemed so impressive with his cast of allies? Had his friends not besieged Vienna at one point, while the Kingdom of Bohemia declared for him? Yet Frederick had been crushed, and was reduced to little more than a burden to the Dutch in his Amsterdam exile. And what of that other significant foreign invader, the King of Denmark? Furnished with a splendid triple alliance in 1625, the future had seemed bright indeed for Christian IV, and yet the forces of the Emperor had swollen to unimaginable levels, and the Danish kingdom and Danish armies had been systematically destroyed by the late 1620s. In short, to the two electors, the record of opposition to the Habsburgs was not encouraging. That they had felt compelled to act and formulate the Leipzig Manifesto in February to March 1631 spoke more to their anger towards the Edict of Restitution than to any deep-seated desire on their part to oppose their lawful emperor, betray the German constitution and side with the invader. This was evident enough by their refusal to side with Gustavus thereafter, but in Emperor Ferdinand II's mind, a position of determined neutrality on their part was simply not good enough. They would have to support him unconditionally, or they would be the enemy of the Habsburgs. Evidence of the uncompromising position which the Emperor had taken towards these electors is found in mid-May. Before Magdeburg had been sacked, Ferdinand had already issued an imperial decree which declared the Leipzig Manifesto illegal and ordered the two electors partaking in it to disband their 40,000 soldiers. To guarantee their compliance, reinforcements were sent from the recently closed theatre in North Italy, and these soldiers enjoyed some success. They overran Württemberg and much of Franconia in the south and southwest of Germany respectively. Perhaps the Emperor anticipated that the new force of the Leipzig Manifesto would be dissolved just like the old Protestant Union had been dissolved in the early stages of the conflict, but if this was his hope, then he was to be disappointed. The Emperor's major goal in sending these reinforcements northwards was to persuade reluctant neutrals to resume their contributions to the Emperor's forces and to renew payment of war taxes which would keep the armies afloat. Unfortunately for the Elector of Brandenburg, the reach of imperial forces in the north of Germany was nowhere near as strong as it was in the south. Since late 1630, imperial garrisons had been withdrawing from Pomerania, and this left several fortresses with anemic defences. One such fortress, Spandau, had been granted to Gustavus by George William of Brandenburg for the period of a month only, with the purpose, it was understood, of aiding the relief of Magdeburg. Once Magdeburg fell, though, George William of Brandenburg displayed little inclination to join the Swedes and avenge his uncle, whose corpse had been floating in the River Elbe for some time now, since the sack of Magdeburg. Instead, the Brandenburg elector requested that the Swedish king give Spandau back to him, as the purpose for holding it was no longer applicable. By now, surely disenchanted with the Protestant Germans, the Swedish king sent his brother-in-law something of an ultimatum. Unless, Gustavus declared to George William of Brandenburg on the 9th of June 1631, you confirm me in possession of Spandau, I will retire altogether from the war, and, leaving a strong garrison to hold Pomerania for the crown of Sweden, 
let you and your fellow Protestants defend yourselves against Tilly as best you can. This was nothing less than a threat to leave the recalcitrant elector of Brandenburg to the mercy of the imperialists, which Gustavus Bainte would be less than merciful after George William of Brandenburg's months of opportunistic neutrality. Incredibly, though, the elector of Brandenburg did not cave into the pressure, making a claim instead that he would stand alongside the elector of Saxony under the Leipzig Manifesto and, essentially, take his chances with the emperor. This seems to have pushed Gustavus into taking severe action. He dutifully evacuated Spandau shortly afterwards, but as he marched his soldiers past Berlin, he finally brought to bear all the military pressure at his disposal. As his cannons were pointed towards Berlin, Gustavus sent his brother-in-law another request for a treaty, this time couched in language which was far more uncompromising and really kind of serves as the basis not just for the book, but for the common theme of this whole podcast series in general. I don't want to hear about neutrality, Gustavus declared. His grace must be my friend or foe. He must declare himself cold or hot. This is a fight between God and the devil. If his grace is with God, he must join me. If he is for the devil, he must fight me. There is no third way. Of course, not merely George William of Brandenburg, but several other German potentates had been desperately searching for this third way for some time, and Gustavus's refusal to recognise a neutral party was actually mirrored in the policy of the emperor, as we've seen, who had elected to stamp out those signees to the Leipzig Manifesto rather than risk their cooperation with the enemy. After 12 years of war, in fact, too much was at stake for either invader or emperor to allow a third way to exist in Germany. Neutrality was impossible so long as a foreign king was in Germany threatening to upend the string of triumphs which the Habsburgs had enjoyed since 1620, or to jeopardise that religious settlement which had been enshrined with the Edict of Restitution. The choice for Germans and their rulers was one of God or the Devil, but it of course depended on one's persuasions and loyalties where one perceived either the God or the Devil to reside. The debate was at least over for George William of Brandenburg. Facing such intense pressure with the grinning iron mouths of Gustavus's cannon pointed at his palace, he could do no other than capitulate. If he did not, proclaimed one of Gustavus's subordinates, he would send the Duchess and all the ladies prisoners to Sweden, and the Duke should follow. His decision made for him, George William signed a generous treaty with Gustavus on the 20th of June 1631. The Elector of Brandenburg then turned to a unenviable task, drafting a letter to his Emperor to explain his position, and explain why he had been forced to side with the enemy, and why this state of affairs certainly was not his fault. His Majesty of Sweden, George William insisted in his letter to the Emperor, already used every opportunity during the Leipzig Convention, through letters or envoys, to present us with this dilemma. We should either join him or fight him. Brandenburg was too weak to resist, the Elector insisted. Since then, Imperial troops have abandoned our towns after feeble defence and evacuated our lands, from which they had drawn many millions, claiming they could not trust us. At the height of his powers, Emperor Ferdinand had compelled George William of Brandenburg to conclude an alliance with him in 1627. Part of the terms of this alliance 
was that 10,000 Imperial troops would be billeted on the lands of Brandenburg, paid for by the Elector of Brandenburg. These had been evacuated in recent months, though, and joined up with Count Tilly, which the Elector not unreasonably claimed now left him utterly defenceless. Recalling Gustavus's arrival outside Berlin, George William noted how he hoped that by letting the king into Berlin, the business would be easier in those surroundings than when we negotiated through our councillors. As George William had since discovered, though, we found that His Majesty of Sweden still insisted on the same points and ignored ours. Instead, he presented harsh counter-demands. These demands involved handing any fortresses Gustavus required to his forces, permitting Gustavus to recover war costs from Pomerania, granting Sweden a regular subsidy to pay for its forces, and finally, to ratify the alliance with the Duke of Pomerania. Pomerania had long been a sore spot for George William of Brandenburg, as he had seen poised to inherit the childless Duke's lands before Gustavus had arrived and claimed the whole territory of Pomerania for himself. Faced with Gustavus's military supremacy, George William of Brandenburg had little choice but to accept the unacceptable. However genuine the elector may have been in this communique to the emperor, it is evident from it that he was not confidently joining a great crusade against Catholic Vienna. Instead, George William was being forced against his will to support his brother-in-law, and he earnestly hoped that the emperor would forgive him for it. The duty that binds us to his Roman imperial majesty, Ferdinand II, and the empire, the respect we possess amongst our fellow evangelical estates, even what the imperial and Christ's constitution, the hereditary inheritance pacts and family agreements allow, all this counts for nothing. Emperor Ferdinand knew only too well that the constitution of the empire could be brushed aside when one possessed the preponderance of forces. Had he not done the exact same thing when promising the moon to the Duke of Bavaria in return for the Duke of Bavaria's support against the rebellious Elector Palatine? And speaking of that Duke of Bavaria, Maximilian II had not rested on his laurels while the King of Sweden marched, and Cardinal Richelieu schemed. To ensure his gains in the war against a potential imperial defeat, Maximilian, not for the last time, sought additional protections from the French. The result of this backdoor scheming was the Treaty of Fontainebleau, signed on the 30th of May 1631, which confirmed previous arrangements and diplomatic manoeuvres in a treaty supposed to last eight years. Under the terms of this treaty, Maximilian of Bavaria was compelled not to provide soldiers or money either directly or indirectly to those who attack his most Christian majesty, King Louis XIII of France, and his provinces, nor to allow the recruitment in his lands of soldiers against the said king and his provinces, nor to permit friends to provide secretly weapons, cannons and gunpowder to such soldiers. And I know what you might be thinking. Surely it was a little bit awkward for the Duke of Bavaria to negotiate secretly with France when the French were kind of lining themselves up to oppose the Habsburgs, and the Habsburgs were the Duke of Bavaria's main allies. And you're right, it was awkward. But it wasn't just awkward. In the context of France's alliance with Sweden and the Duke's record of firm support of the Emperor, it was also basically obsolete from the moment pen was put to paper. 
From the moment of Wallenstein's dismissal the previous autumn, the Catholic League had constituted the main bulk of the forces which the Emperor had sent to meet the Swedish king. The other option for military force resided in the remnants of Wallenstein's army, which had been shipped to North Italy and was only beginning to return to Germany in spring 1631. Thus, Ferdinand would have to rely upon the Catholic League, and this league was a Bavarian institution, its soldiers traditionally receiving their pay from the Duke of Bavaria. Catholic League forces had destroyed Frederick V's prospects at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620. They had marched along the length and breadth of the Danish peninsula, and they continued to be billeted throughout the empire. The army of the Catholic League, under the command of Count Tilly, was markedly more acceptable to the Catholic German princes than the independent Generalissimo Wallenstein and his ever-increasing force, but its comparatively smaller size brought with it its own problems, even while it made Maximilian more influential than ever before. It was therefore impossible for Maximilian to abide by the terms of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, lest he wished to take the very confrontational step of withdrawing his Catholic League soldiers from the relevant posts. This would surely have ruined his relationship with the Emperor, and could have jeopardised his gains in the Palatinate in the early 1620s, whereupon the transferal of the electoral title of that territory to Bavaria had been confirmed, and which Maximilian, of course, now jealously guarded. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But such an overt step was not what Cardinal Richelieu even desired, since Article 6 of the Treaty of Fontainebleau declared... Since circumstances require that this alliance and mutual defence pact between his most Christian majesty and the elector of Bavaria must on no account be divulged to others, both sides have agreed that it will not be publicly acknowledged. So the Treaty of Fontainebleau was a secret, not for Richelieu to inform Gustavus, nor for Maximilian to inform his emperor, and if it was on the whole unenforceable, considering the military situation at the time, 
wouldn't it be forgiven for asking what the point in negotiating the treaty had been in the first place? Peter H. Wilson put it best when he wrote that Both parties recognised that the treaty was unenforceable, but regarded it as a statement of mutual good intentions. Indeed, the Treaty of Fontainebleau was a step towards a firmer Franco-Bavarian accord, which Richelieu believed was essential for undermining the grip of the Habsburg-Bavarian faction on the Empire. As the summer of 1631 progressed, indeed, it became more and more obvious that the act of preserving peace between the Duke of Bavaria and the King of Sweden would be impossible. Soon enough, France would have to make a choice between its two incompatible allies. The Swedish king faced several unappealing choices himself, none of which seemed destined to deliver to him the loyalty and affection of Protestant Germans, which he both desired and needed if a victory against the Habsburgs was to be secured. He had been forced to effectively place a gun at the head of his brother-in-law, as we have seen, and if not even family could be persuaded to come to his aid, then what likelihood was there that other German strangers would? The deal with Brandenburg had bought him some time, but it was by no means a silver bullet. Until the support of the Elector of Saxony could be confirmed, it was too risky for Gustavus to march into the heart of Germany and challenge Tilly to a conclusive showdown. Thus, Gustavus set his subordinates into nearby territories to clear out what remained of the imperial resistance, solidifying his grip over Pomerania and Mecklenburg and much of northern Germany that stretched into the Baltic Sea. He then moved his main army of 16,000 men to the River Elbe, where, after several days' hard work, his army constructed an impressive fortified camp near a small town called Verben. A quick sketch of the position illustrates its suitability for holding out, which was what Gustavus was forced to do throughout July 1631. Situated at a confluence of the River Elbe with the River Havel, Verben enjoyed the geographic protection of these waters to the north and east, while a bastion of complex defences had been established to cover the remaining two flanks. The preparations proved essential, because Count Tilly approached with his larger army of 24,000 men on the 1st of August, but after two attempts, he was unable to break through the defences. Gustavus would proclaim that the veteran imperial commander had lost some 7,000 men in the assaults, but the true number was much smaller. So at long last, the Count and the King had had their first military encounter. It was, for all intents and purposes, something of an anti-climax, because neither actor possessed sufficient means to defeat the other. Nothing more ensued but a distant cannonade and a few skirmishes in which the Swedes had invariably the advantage, wrote one historian. But the Swedes had at least weathered the storm, and Tilly was forced to move south to a fortified camp of his own, where he sought provisions for his army in desperation. Had Gustavus elected to move out of his camp at Verben and confront Tilly's numerically larger force, then the name of Verben would certainly be more well known today. Yet, as it stood by early August 1631, both commanders recognised that the time was not yet right for the Great Showdown. During August 1631, Gustavus was joined in his camp by William, the Landgrave of Hesse Castle, and the first sovereign prince in Germany who voluntarily and openly declared against the emperor, though not wholly uninfluenced by strong motives, said the historian Friedrich Schiller. 
Finally, here was a German Protestant prince who would come on his own free will, without the threat of Swedish cannons bearing down on his capital. Just as important as this symbolic victory was the practical aid that Landgrave William brought in his army of 7,000 men. Gustavus then led a triumphant procession to Mecklenburg, where he oversaw the reinstatement of the old Dukes of Mecklenburg, expelled for supporting the Danish king, and since replaced by Wallenstein, who had been named the Duke of Mecklenburg. The writing of this wrong in the empire was an important feather in Gustavus's cap, but it also represented an attack upon the retired Wallenstein. Although Wallenstein no longer served his emperor in the field, it seemed that the emperor's enemies were still able to strike back at him. Matters had deteriorated for Wallenstein since his dismissal the previous September in 1630. I thank God to be free of the net, he had declared when learning of his dismissal following the Diet of Regensburg. Yet, Wallenstein's financial resources had dwindled notably since his retirement, and his personal banker had even committed suicide rather than face the pressure any longer. Mecklenburg had been a great boon to Wallenstein's portfolio, but with its recapture by the enemies of the emperor, Wallenstein was shown just how quickly the fortunes of war could change. Although he remained Duke of Friedland, there was no guarantee that this too would be secure if Gustavus was allowed to continue south. For the sake of his own interests, as much as that of Germany then, Wallenstein remained up to date with the situation in the empire. Although he was absent from the emperor's circle, he remained at the other end of the emperor's letters, and can't have been surprised when the calls for his reappointment began to increase from late 1631. Before we continue with the story of 1631 history, friends, I just want to remind you, or let you know if you somehow were not aware, that this podcast is on Patreon. And if you were to support this show on Patreon, you'll get about 40 hours of extra content delivered straight to your ears, like right away. And you'll be able to access that easily on your podcatchers simply by clicking on the link and copying it into your podcatchers, which you will get when you sign up. Trust me, it's much more simple than I just made it sound. Loads of people have signed up to be patrons, and you guys are actually making this PhD that I'm doing possible. I can't wait until I'm finished this PhD, not just so I can be Dr. Zach, but so that I can stop begging you all so much for support. But you guys really have answered in droves, and I really appreciate it. If you were to sign up, as I said, you'd get that extra back catalogue of content, but what's really in there? Well, among other things, you'll be able to listen to a multi-part series on the Suez Crisis from 1956, which seems quite topical right now, considering how Britain has just not even shot itself in the foot, more like directed artillery cannonades at its feet in order to do a Brexit. Brexit is probably a bigger mistake than the Suez Crisis, but it's hard to tell, really, at this point, conclusively. If that feels too current for you, then be sure to check out Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which explores the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth up to about 1750, and I plan to take up that story basically once I've finished the PhD. You may have noticed I've yet to do Britain Goes to War. You might even say that I somewhat underestimated how much work all this would be, but things are going fine, and those of you who are supporting, I appreciate it so much, but there's always room for more. So if you would like to support When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon and get access to all those goodies, you know where to go. Click on the link in the description below or simply search When Diplomacy Fails when you're on Patreon.com. Thanks, guys, and enjoy the rest of the show. 
As August 1631 gave way to September, the urgency in Count Tilly's camp began to increase. In fact, following the repulse of his forces from the camp at Verben, Tilly made for the borders of Saxony, where it was hoped the neutral elector of Saxony could be persuaded to attach his banners to that of the emperor. More than merely money or soldiers, though, Tilly was desperate to replenish his men after marching through the charred remnants of the Elbe Basin for several months. He had received no support from his emperor, and his orders were often unclear as well. When the rebellious Landgrave of Hesse Castle had marched to Gustavus's side, Tilly had refrained from attacking the lands of the former to appease the Saxon elector, who was a fellow Protestant. Yet John George of Saxony refused to be drawn to help Count Tilly, and he seemed determined to maintain his own army of 18,000 recruits. Having watched Brandenburg being forced to fall in line with the Swedes, John George no doubt intended to be more successful than George William in preserving his position, but his determination only seemed to force Count Tilly's hand. In all the days of my life, Tilly complained, I have never seen an army so suddenly and totally deprived of all that it needs, from the greatest to the smallest requisite, and I am utterly astonished that the poor soldiers remain so long in such necessity. After several weeks balancing precariously on the edge of ruin, Tilly felt he had no other option than to invade. On the 5th of September, a great turning point in the Thirty Years' War was thus played out, as Tilly's depleted force followed the lead of all armies before them, and began pillaging, plundering and seizing all they could from the virtually unspoiled Saxon lands. It is easy to imagine that after months of marching over the scorched, empty landscape, Saxony would have seemed like a land of milk and honey to Tilly's men. With its bountiful harvests and gleaming cities, Saxony could sustain Tilly well into 1632, but it contained more than just these treasures. The Saxon lands also contained an influential elector, a leading figure among German Protestants, and his army of 18,000 men, which he had raised for just such a purpose as this. As Wedgwood described, the actions of Count Tilly swept the negotiations out of John George's hands. After attempting to balance between Emperor and Gustavus for so long, John George now had the choice made for him. He could hardly side with the party which had now ravaged his lands, however unpalatable it might be, it was eminently better to side with the invader, which might pile pressure upon the emperor, than it was to accept his now depressing lot as a besieged elector. Less than a week after Tilly's men invaded, on the 11th of September 1631, John George of Saxony concluded an alliance with the King of Sweden. Tilly must have known that this would be the penalty for his invasion, that he invaded and sucked Saxon lands dry, despite the inevitable consequences, speaks to the veteran commander's desperation. When he had entreated John George to permit his men access to Saxony a few days before, the elector had replied prophetically, Now I see that the Saxon sweetmeats, so long spared, are to be eaten, but you may find that they contain hard nuts which will break your teeth. Count Tilly elected to take his chances and feast on these sweetmeats, but sure enough, the teeth-breaking quickly followed as the elector of Saxony added his 18,000 raw recruits to Gustavus's 24,000 veterans, thus creating a massive disparity in numbers, where once Tilly had the advantage with his army of 35,000. The terms of the Swedish-Saxon alliance would also have given Tilly reason to pause. It committed Saxony to 
supply the necessary food and forage to His Majesty of Sweden's army as long as it is in our lands fighting our enemies to not withdraw our troops from his as long as the danger persists nor make peace without prior consent and to join him with our army and act in concert standing as one against our common enemies. This alliance between the Swedes and Saxons in other words was everything that Emperor Ferdinand had wanted the Elector of Saxony to give him but due to a combination of factors from the infamous edict to the rapacious nature of the war John George sided against his emperor for the very first time. The alliance with the two electors which Gustavus had sought since his landing in July 1630 was finally his but it came with several asterisks. Not even Gustavus himself would have admitted that he wholly trusted either elector. His own brother-in-law had been so fearful of reprimand by the emperor and so unsure of Gustavus's position that he had joined the Swedish king only under the threat of total destruction. John George of Saxony, meanwhile, had attached his forces to Sweden only after he had been forced to by the destruction of his homeland and the seizure of Leipzig, which fell to Tilly on the 15th of September. Gustavus was under no illusions and confessed to a Saxon agent shortly after the elector's dilemma became so acute. I am sorry for the elector of Saxony. Had he heeded my repeated remonstrances, his country would never have seen the face of an enemy and Magdeburg would not have fallen. Now, when necessity leaves him no alternative, he has recourse to my assistance. But tell him that I cannot, for the sake of the elector of Saxony, ruin my own cause and that of my confederates. What pledge have I for the sincerity of a prince whose minister is in the pay of Austria and who will abandon me as soon as the emperor flatters him and withdraws his troops from his frontiers? Tilly, it is true, has received a strong reinforcement, but this shall not prevent me from meeting him with confidence as soon as I have covered my rear. Although he was not confident in John George's reliability, or even in the professionalism of the Saxon recruits, the numbers which the defection provided Gustavus were still invaluable. The political impact of the two Protestant electors of the empire joining sides with Sweden also sent a clear message. It underlined the religious element of the struggle which remained relevant. Content as many of the smaller princes were to follow Saxony's lead, the possibility that Saxony would do battle alongside the Swedish king and that they might miss out on the spoils which would follow served as a powerful motive as well. Indeed, unwilling to allow the momentum of recent weeks to subside, Gustavus felt confident at long last to abandon his fortified position and wrest from Count Tilly a commitment to meet him in a pitched battle. It had been a season of choices, and now Gustavus made the most important choice of all, where to have this battle upon which the future of Sweden, of Germany, and the Thirty Years' War would depend. He chose the little-known town of Breitenfeld, some eight kilometres northwest of Leipzig. And now the final choice was Count Tilly's. Would Tilly confront his nemesis, or would he avoid him now that the Swedish king possessed the numerical advantage? As it happened, for Count Tilly this was not much of a choice at all. He made straight for Breitenfeld, intending at long last to put to bed the legend of the Swedish king and to reassert his reputation as the emperor's foremost generalissimo. The god and the devil would have their showdown at last. That's going to do it for this episode of the 30 Years War History, friends. In the next, we will, of course, look at that battle. So I hope you'll join me for that 
But until then, thanks so much for listening to this show, and thanks to those patrons who continue to support me. I really appreciate you. Take care, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.